Please be seated. This morning we continue our study of what is known as the Upper Room Discourses by Bible scholars and Bible students. We'll be reading the end of chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, uh, John 15, 18, and we'll continue into the first few verses of chapter 16. While you're turning, let me lead us in prayer. Our great God and Father, we come to you with thanksgiving on this day, for you have gathered us here. We offer our praises to you, and you are worthy to receive them. We give you tithes and offerings as an expression of uh, gratitude and trust that you are the provider and you will provide for our needs in obedience that you might use those gifts and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We offer our prayers to you, acknowledging that you are God and you are the one who is sovereign and we are not. We continue to worship now as we can hear your word. Pray that by your spirit, you will speak through the word that you've recorded through your servant John. Renew our minds, shape our hearts, form us to be like Christ even as you free us from our brokenness and sin. This is the promise of your word that never comes empty. May we worship by recognizing that it is you who speak and submitting. We pray in Christ to his glory, to our good. Amen. John chapter 15, verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. If the world hates you, Know that it has, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they d- will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. The word of our God. In the introduction to his book, 
Where in the World is the Church? Author and theologian Michael Horton offers a confession. Here's what he says. I remember being confused as a boy by two popular hymns that seemed to be quite contradictory. The first was, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. The other was, this is my father's world. If this is my father's world, I wondered, why is it not my home and why am I just passing through? So he offers a very good question and in his question and in his confusion, he is expressing a common confusion that many people, many of us share as well, wondering what exactly is the relationship that the church, the people of God, are to have with the world in which we live. If we were to put it up on as a Facebook status, the best way for us to explain that relationship is it's complicated. Because we have clear teachings in Scripture. Jesus teaches us this, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We're told this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith. In other words, the priority might be for other believers, but it doesn't minimize the importance of doing good for everyone who is in our sphere of relationship. We have God's prophecy to his people that we're living in exile. In a pagan culture, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And so God's people were told that you are where you're supposed to be. This culture is not mine. These are not my people, but I put you there so that you'll bless them and pray for these people, even though they are very different and don't belong to me. We even have the word of Solomon from Proverbs recognizing this truth. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there is shouts of joy. In other words, the culture that is around that doesn't belong to God recognizes and rejoices at times when those who belong to God are prevailing, are successful, are seeing their values lived out because it's the fulfillment of what God told the people in exile. Bless them, and then the people themselves are blessed. And this is the way that we are to live in the world. And yet we also have these teachings from Scripture. Do not be conformed to this world. And this, do not love the world or the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so we see it again that this idea of the relationship that we are to have with the world, it's complicated. We are to be a blessing to those who are around us. We are to be praying to God all for their prosperity. We are to do good for everyone who is around them. We're just not supposed to be like them. And in one sense, we're not supposed to love the world uh, in which they live, in which we live. That's confusing enough. And then when we consider the relationship we're supposed to have with the world, now we have this teaching that Jesus gives to us, this warning that Jesus gives to us in the passage this morning. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. In fact, he's teaching throughout this passage that we should expect that the world around us is going to hate us. That complicates an already complicated relationship. 
Now, some of us may wonder, who are all these people that are supposed to hate us? And why? I mean, the who are these people is confusing enough in one sense because almost every one of us, I hope every one of us, knows people that are not believers, that don't assume they're believers. They have no connection with the church of Jesus Christ in any expression. And yet they're nice to us. They like us. They may even love us. They may be your neighbors. They may be your friends, co-workers, family members. And we have a good relationship with them. And there's no indication that they hate us. Every one of us has that experience. And throughout the world, that is the reality, that not everybody who is an unbeliever hates those who are Christians. So what is it Jesus is saying here? We need to understand when Jesus is talking about the world in this case and don't love the world, he's not talking about the individual. He's not even talking about the creation that God created and called good. He's talking about the systems of the world that stand either in opposition or in alienation from God. And what I mean by that is we're told in the scriptures that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against other people, but against powers and principalities. There are systems in this world, values, or spiritual dimensions, and they're expressed through people groups and through those who have gained power, who put their power together. Sometimes that's in the form of government. Sometimes it's cartels. Sometimes it can be in any, any number of expressions. And they have gathered this power through and expressed their values, which are contrary and in conflict with God's values. And in those cases, it's very obvious to say, here's what we stand for, they stand for this, and there is a clear conflict. But there are also those systems that are not in hostility to the gospel, at least not overtly, but there are systems that are alienated from God. In other words, they may share and overlap some of our values, but they're creating an alternative culture, an alternative hope, trying to promise all of the blessings that God himself provides, but to do so with or without God and certainly without the cross of Jesus Christ. And so while they don't seem to be hostile, they're not going to attack you necessarily. They are seducing people and encouraging people to be more broad-minded, to recognize multiple ways, and then promising the result that they cannot deliver. These may not be in direct hostility. Nevertheless, they are against or alienated from God. And we are told that not only those who are clearly opposed to God's views, but ultimately, even those who just come alongside will end up expressing hatred to God's people and to God himself. Jesus says this is the reality in which we live. And so as we look at this passage, we, we're wondering, and we want to look at it in a different way, because if, if this is the reality we live, we want to know what are the reasons and how are we supposed to respond. And so we're going to look at it, our time at that. Here's the reality. Expect if you belong to Jesus Christ that there may be people who hate you. What are the responses and ultimately how, what are, what are the reasons for it and then ultimately how are we, going, how are we to respond? So if the reality is that there will be people, do not be surprised if people hate you, remember that they hated Jesus first. We ask the reasons why, and Jesus is quite clear in this passage. I mean, even the very first verse, he says, they hate you because you belong to Jesus Christ. That's what he says as we look in verses, uh, in, in chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Verse 18, uh, for ni- uh, 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. 19, if you were of the world, 
the world will love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And we see Jesus is expressing, and he's really giving us two broad categories. The world hates the people of God because we belong to Jesus. Now, some may say, well, why? What's the big deal? And it may be a question that people wrestle with. We need to understand the nature of Jesus's ministry and his mission as he came to this earth. And to put it in a picture of context, imagine this, that there was a king who has been put in exile someplace some time ago. He was the rightful king of, the, of his people and of that territory, but some powers had come in and moved him out, seduced the people or oppressed the people, took control. And so the king, while he is the rightful king, is not, in fact, the king reigning right now. He's living somewhere else. And imagine now that the people who have usurped the authority and usurped the power have been reigning and in control for so long that there's almost nobody left who remembers the way things used to be. In fact, they have gotten used to the way things are. Nobody expects anything to be perfect. They are aware of the flaws of the system and the, uh, of the unrighteousness in certain ways, but we're comfortable. We learn to adjust. Some have learned to use those things to their own advantage. Others lament, but this is the status quo. Now imagine the king has decided he's coming back. Not only is he coming back, but he's going to take control again. And he declares that he is now not only back, but he has restored his reign. And therefore, everyone that is under that kingdom is supposed to operate according to the way he says, not according to the way they are used to. Now, anytime that happens, now we look at this through religious lens and we think, that's great, and we're, we're cheering. But the people who are part of a society that is going through that kind of turmoil, they're not necessarily that excited. We have this incredible capacity to become comfortable with the status quo. Even though sometimes things are not great, we are afraid of what we do not know. And then others who become stakeholders in the culture, they have their whole life and their own prosperity vested in the system that is presently in place. Some of them are even winners and are, have potential of reigning and taking control as well. And so this new king, who really is the rightful king coming back, threatens everything that we have invested in for our lives because his reign is reign that is not according to the values and the systems and the practices that we have become used to. In fact, the only ones who were ever excited about seeing something like this happening, the king coming back to restore his rightful reign, are the people who are totally dissatisfied with what's going on. The people who are disenfranchised, the situational losers, they alone are the ones who are hopeful of seeing this reign come. But everybody else, at the very least, is uncomfortable and even hostile to this king because he is upturning everything. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done. He has the one who has created all things by speaking it into existence. He is the rightful king, but when our first parents rebelled against him, the enemy moved in, and Jesus, in one sense, was in exile. God continued to reign and order all things, but he was not reigning specifically in the cultures of the world. We're in rebellion, either hostility or alienation from God. And the practices, 
Sometimes they overlap certain character values that God has expressed, but they were not operating according to the ways of God. Now, Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and I'm the king. Time for people to change and to follow my reign. If you were one of the ones who were in charge, if you were one of the ones who were the winners in the system before Jesus came back, you're not going to respond very favorably to that. You're going to be hostile. You're going to be angry, and you want to see that undermined. Only those who are dissatisfied with the world would be excited about seeing something like that happening. But it's not even a matter of just the overarching culture. Jesus, they hate Jesus because he not only came and to restore his reign, but Jesus came and exposed their sin, our sin. Because here's what he says in verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. And in verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, a couple of things we need to explain here. When Jesus is saying they would not have been guilty of their sin, he's not saying that people were not guilty. He's saying that we have this great capacity of thinking we're all right and minimizing the reality of our sin and brokenness. And it's only when it hits us clear in the face do we acknowledge that. And Jesus came and he taught and the ways that they thought God had spoken, he did so in a way they could not ignore. And he taught that they were not nearly as good as they thought. And then he demonstrated through the power and his works that he wasn't just speaking wisdom, but he has the very power of God, and therefore he should not be ignored. And there's only two ways to respond to that message. There is those who would be broken, and then there would be those who would be angry and hostile. There's an old story from the early days of missions in Africa the time when the inland of Africa was opened up to missionaries, that the wife of an African chief visited the mission, stage, the mission station. And the missionary who was setting up there, I don't know whether he was in a tent or in a more permanent structure, but whatever the setup was in his camp, on a tree outside of the door of where he was dwelling, he hung up a little mirror that he would be able to use both for grooming and for whatever purposes that he might have. And this chiefess came into the village, greeted the missionary, and then as she saw the mirror on the tree and she looked into it, she was startled. She'd never seen her face painted before with the paints of her tribe. She had never seen her own reflection clearly as it hard life and difficulties and the years had weathered and hardened her features. And as she looked into the mirror and she was startled, but she was drawn and she would look at it, she turned to the missionary and she asked, who is that ugly person that is making faces at me from inside the tree? And the missionary explained to her that, that was, there was nobody in the tree that the glass was in fact reflecting her own image and she peeked again and she wasn't buying that. So the missionary had to take the mirror off the tree and put it in her hands and she looked into it here and here and finally she came to recognize that this indeed was her own reflection. 
And she asked the missionary, how much? What, what do you want for this? I, I want this. And he didn't want to part with his, his mirror, but he also realized it was probably better to give it up than potentially create problems. And so he offered a price, and she gladly met the price, and he gave her the mirror. Now that the mirror was hers and she took possession, she looked at it again, she raised it above her head, and she smashed it on the rocks and declared defiantly, now it will never make ugly faces at me again. See, the reality of Jesus Christ who came in word and in deed is he is the reflection of us. We see in him, not him, but we see our ugliness. And those who belong to Jesus to the extent that we are in Christ, that we are abiding in Christ, that Christ is being seen in us, we become those things that people see and they see their own ugliness in that. It's not that we are any different than them, but Jesus came into the world and the whole world was able to see that ugly thing, making faces, and then came to this hard recognition that we are looking at our own reflection. Some of the world responds in brokenness, in recognition that we are ugly and we are in need. And hearing the words of Jesus, believe that he is the one whom God has sent. And in him we have forgiveness and reconciliation and the power to change that we begin more and more to show in our lives the beauty of God in the person of Christ. That's the whole essence of the Christian faith. But the rest of the world doesn't want to see the ugliness that we all bear when we are alienated from God. And so with the same kind of defiance as this woman had that smashed the mirror, people in anger and hostility want to smash Christ and those who belong to him. Anyone who reminds them that they, we, have an ugliness unless God is at work within us. Jesus says it's not just a matter of we're hated because we belong to him and because sin, but there is something else, too, that is related to that. And we go back up again in in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And the reason is because that the world also hates us is because it's in that phrase, of the world. And it carries the weight here is that those who are in Christ, while we live in this world, and there is a sense that we are as much of this world in terms of dwelling and we were born here, but the implication here is that we are not rooted in this world. In other words, we don't get our sources, we don't get our direction, we don't get our value and values from what the world says and what the world dictates. We transcend that and our root is in Christ Jesus because we abide in him and he is in heaven. We are no longer of this world, but even though we look the same and seem to be the same and struggle with the same trials and difficulties, our roots are plugged into God and he is at work within us. And consequently, because we're not rooted, we don't buy in to what the world says is what the implication here. Those who follow Jesus, they choose to buy into what Jesus says, what God says, not to what the systems of the world teach and declare. Listen to what Bible scholar Dale Bruner says. It apparently deeply irritates the world that the disciples' lives are not rooted in the world. 
which must mean, by and large, that the disciples do not go along with it, nor find their deepest joys, resources, or interests in it. Indeed, that they honestly find much to critique in it and go against many of its major convictions and seem sorely out of step with many of its major passions. In other words, we march to a different drummer. And those who are abiding in Christ, those who rooted in Jesus, we are subject to the charge of being on the wrong side of history or the wrong side of culture. Most of us have heard those one way or another simply because we try to be faithful. I think it's true that we are on the wrong side of culture, and I can live with that. But I think if there's anybody that would dare have the audacity to tell the followers of Jesus Christ that you are on the wrong side of history, it's because, as Jesus says, they don't know the one who is the one who writes history. And so anybody that tells you that is incredibly presumptive because what's going on now, what's going on in any particular culture, even what's going on throughout the world, has nothing to do with what the end of the story is going to be. The right side of history is what God says it will be. And yet we still live here. We can use another analogy is that because we have different roots, we are somewhat different. We may look the same. We may function in a lot of the same ways, but we are still aliens in this world of which, from which we came. Now think of about it in a biological sense as if we, therefore, are now inserted into this world, we've been changed in this world as if we are a foreign entity. You see, the world's antibodies naturally respond to that which is foreign. And just as when there's an organ transplant or sometimes a blood transfusion that the body begins to try to reject and to expel any of those things that are foreign, the world, and it by its very nature, the world systems just react to the fact that we are different. We are not necessarily different always in behavior, but we have a different root. We are foreign no matter how much we may look like others. And this passage begs the question for every one of us who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been hated? Is there anyone who hates you now? Regardless of how you answer the question, we must go a step further. We must ask, why or why not? See, there's an important word at the beginning of this passage, is if, if the world hates you. And, and while the implication there is, you know, be prepared and it's to be expected sort of when, but it's not always. And those of us who have grown up in this culture, in America, in the West, we have by and large been spared from any real hostility, any real oppression, any real persecution uh, because of our faith. We've had annoyances, we have other things, but we have had no more trials because of what we believe. Even the things that are opposing the church today are not oppressing us. They're just not validating our privileged status anymore, and it's difficult for us to swallow. And yet it's quite frightening to look at the trends of the culture and thinking that maybe we ourselves will experience the kind of persecution that we see going on in the world. Whether we will or whether we don't, I don't know the answer to that. But there is an if here, and so it is quite possible that you haven't experienced being hated just because God, in, so far in your life, has providentially created an opportunity for you to live at relative peace. But we do need to ask ourselves very honestly whether or not that's the situation or the reason that nobody's ever hated us is because we look too much like the world. And if we look like the world, then there would be no reason for them to hate us. But if you have been hated, 
I think it's important that we ask ourselves, am I hated because I'm too much like Jesus or because I'm too much like a jerk? Because I know a lot of Bible-thumping evangelical fundamentalist Christians who just are not nice to other people around. And they appeal to oppressors like this and saying, see, I'm just being faithful and that's why everybody hates me, ignoring the fact that most Christians hate them too. I mean, it's just... Well, we have to forgive you and love you even if we hate you, but that's the, that's the whole thing. We need to be asking ourselves, why am I being hated if I'm being hated? Whether you're experiencing it now or whether it is something that is just potentially in your future, Jesus says this is the reality. I've given you the reasons why. And all of us are left now. How do we respond? I think the first thing that Jesus indicates to us is that we shouldn't be surprised if and when it comes. That's what he says and essentially at the beginning here, but certainly in, in the verses beginning chapter 16. Verse 1, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. In other words, I'm telling you in advance. And in verse 4, he sums up that whole thing. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes or when that hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. In other words, when it comes, you have been given ample warning in advance. And so if we experience it, if it is God's design for our culture to experience that, for Christians to be oppressed and not just no longer privileged, we shouldn't be surprised. But then we are told what we are and are not to do. I think with the implication here, the reason that we're being told in advance is not so that we can avoid it, but so that we can endure it and bear fruit. But there is a temptation because who wants to go through this? I had a seminary professor who used to have a poetic statement that he claimed, but it wasn't true of his life. He had been a very effective missionary, but he claimed that martyrdom was the gift that you only use once, so he was saving that for him. And that his mantra was, when persecution comes your way, run, run far away and live to preach another day. And I thought, that sounds good to me. And so everything within me would resonate with that. But the scripture here, Jesus is not saying, see, I'm giving you warning so you can get out of town. In fact, he says something quite opposite here, and we'll get to that in a moment. But we need to look at our natural instinct to run, run far away. And Christians can do that in, in two different ways. John Stott says this. Some escape persecution by withdrawing from the world, others by becoming assimilated to it. In other words, there are some people fearing that there's possible persecution. They choose to withdraw and hunker down into some secluded, semi-monastic semi life, waiting for all of the storms to pass. In this way, they never have to come into contact or minimize the potential contact with anybody who might uh, reject you or hate you or hurt you. The only problem with this is that nor can you bear fruit and be a blessing in the place where God has placed you. But this idea clearly is resonating with a lot of people as evidenced by the fact that Rod Dreyer's book, The Benedict Option, has been so popular and so studied. And in The Benedict Option, he's basically saying, he's claiming prophecy, hey, it's inevitable. We're going to be experiencing this kinds of persecution. And so the best thing to do is hide off into communities and, and get as much away from the rest of the world as possible. Now, in his case, he doesn't do a fully monastic because he just says, we can't 
we can't survive totally away, but as much as possible, Christians need to huddle together and just stay away from the rest of the world. It's kind of tough to do evangelism that way. What are we going to do? Just throw our tracks over the walls. Nothing oozes love like that, right? I don't want anything to do with you, but here's what I want you to hear. I mean, that's just not the way God designed things. And so as tempting as it is. Now, in the book, he has several things that are worthwhile, but the overarching narrative, I would just say this. The Benedict option is no option for those who want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. But there are others, as Stott points out, who simply assimilate. There are those who compromise and they become so much like the world, hoping to be embraced by the world. And unfortunately, way too many evangelical churches and evangelical Christians are embracing this and saying, well, what will it hurt? Well, I'll go along with this teaching. I'll go along with this practice because that's not the essence of everything. The whole point is people and churches are built on being relevant, which itself is not a bad value. It is just never an ultimate value. Because if you are relevant and that is your goal, then you will only talk about the things that the world wants to talk about. And you ultimately will have to do what they want you to do because the gospel itself is offensive and doesn't seem particularly relevant to people who think they're fine. And yet they're caving and it's becoming evident in their lack of following and lack of preaching the word and their lack of obedience to the call to bear your cross. And if God crushes you to bear fruit, then that's the way that he works. We need to be very careful that that temptation is not true of us as a people and as a church. Charles Spurgeon, reminding us that that temptation is not new, said this in his own day. One reason the church of God at this present moment has so little influence in the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be withdrawing. But Jesus says here we should be engaging. Verses 26 and 27. When a helper comes, I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's providential that this passage is on Pentecost Sunday. Because what's promised here is that when the time comes that we may experience persecution, those who are our brothers and sisters who are experiencing persecution, they're able to not only withstand, but they're able to endure and bear fruit because of the power of the Holy Spirit has come. And is at work in and through his people throughout the world. And it's evident as we look in certain statistics. 75% of the world is living in areas of the country, a world where there's oppression for uh, religious, uh, religious restrictions. Center for Global Christianity said that from AD 30 to AD 2000, 70 million Christians died as martyrs. Of those, there were 45 million of the 70 million that died in the 20th century alone. Statistics today tell us that there are between 287 and 288 martyrs per day. I'm not going to argue with the statistics, so that's 287 and a half. I'm not sure, but a lot. 12 per hour. One martyr for following Jesus Christ every five minutes. But listen to this statistic that was found by the Operation World in 2010. After years of research, they determined that the fastest growing evangelical church per capita in the world is where? Iran. The second fastest 
evangel growing evangelical church in the world is in Afghanistan. Because the Spirit of God is testifying as his people testify, stand firm, stand true, and are bearing fruits. How are we to relate to this world in a complicated relationship? Jesus tells us this very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. People of God, whether persecution comes or not, I don't know. I'm not a prophet in that sense. Be warned. Believe. Be faithful. Be empowered. Bear fruit by loving your neighbor even as you love yourself. Father, we pray that you would not only prepare us in mind emotionally for what may come, but you would prepare us to be the vessels through which you bear your fruit. I pray that you would spare us, for no one seeks to be persecuted. There's no great delight in it. I pray for those who are experiencing it, Lord, that you would not only free them, but you would bear fruit in the process. But prepare us that as we turn our eyes to you, that we will not be overwhelmed by that which frightens us, we will bear fruit even among those who hate us. For once we were your enemies, and you have loved us and shown us that there is greater love, no greater love than this. Christ Jesus came and died for us while we were still enemies. May Christ in us do the same for those around us. We pray in Christ. Amen.